Giant Penny, Episode 6, Indie Comics. Welcome, everyone, to uh, Giant Penny, Episode 6, uh, Independent Comics in the 80s and the 90s. With us today is Jay. Hi guys. Hello, Jay. Hello, Jay. And thank you. And uh, James, who some know as Hanzo the Razor. It's pronounced Hanzo the Razor. You I'm sorry. fake fan. <laughs> Are we allowed to swear on the? Well, I mean, I know we have a lot of kids that listen to the podcast. <laughs> I, I vote for PG thirteen. So those to those kids, I say, okay. don't let the man tell you what to do. And by the man, I mean Jay Matthews. Yeah, they gotta learn sometime. Yeah, except when you're at work or in public or in front of people you don't know and everything else. <laughs> oh, Jay, you still buy the book? I know. Well, he, you know, he is a Mormon, so <laughs> not a Mormon. guidelines. That is a joke. I am not a Mormon. Uh, <laughs> he is a Mormon <laughs> minus <laughs> the uh, second M. Good one, but no. I'm Zing! Not. That's a spelling <laughs> joke, the best kind. Oh uh, man. So we're so, doing um, independent so guess, comics, the history of independent comics, which inevitably involves the 80s and slightly into the 90s. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, well, so I, some of the context for, for all our myriad listeners um, who are following us, who have been following us for six glorious episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone listened uh, to us? Thank you for all the comments of support, everyone. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, I just, uh, some fan just sent me a whole big box of comics. So it was. <laughs> Remember to support us on our Patreon page. <laughs> um, so uh, some people may not know, Jay is just a smidge older than Hanzo and me. Just a smidge. I'm the perfect amount where we're all kind of, what, probably within 10 years, but it, it means I experienced yeah, it less than 10. as a different, as a adolescent, and you guys experienced it as tiny tots. So everything that you guys yeah. started experiencing in the late 80s, to me, was kind of the second, third wave. So yeah, independent comics hit in a weird time to where I experienced, that's one of the key things I experienced differently from you guys after being only like eight years older, right? Yeah, so I, I mean, I'll, I'll ask you then, um, to start it off with, you know, you mentioned some companies before we started the cast, you mentioned Eclipse first um what, what was the other one malibu the, the, yeah the biggies are eclipse and first and then the two the uh, sort of are also worthy of mention are pacific and malibu which they end up merging uh it, there's a lot of acquisitions going on there i think it all ends up in eclipse but i know pacific becomes malibu and then malibu becomes um eclipse but it start. i mean if you look at, at pacific they're doing rocketeer in 1982 right uh, so I guess my question to you was like, how did you first, did you have to go to a comic book store or did you yeah. see those on the newsstand? Yeah, this is the way it emerged and it was weird to experience because when I was a kid, there were no comic book stores to speak of. Every single drugstore had a spinner rack. Every single uh, convenience store, gas station type place had a spinner rack. Occasionally, um, grocery stores would. And so buying comics was an adventure because... You didn't know it was a mystery when they actually came out. I suppose maybe grownups knew that, but they were just there. And if you wanted to collect a comic, you just kind of looked every time you went to the store and said, oh, good, another one's out. <laughs> I would say about 81 or 82 
is when this weird thing started happening. And that is the comics started having the little diamond in there, which we know now because we're informed, we know that was the direct sale only version of the comic as opposed to the ones from the retail market. And that apparently is what enabled um, independent comics to start to exist because now there is a distribution channel that is not the mass market magazine distributors, but there are comic book stores. In my world, the first comic book stores were at flea markets. In the cities, I was not in an urban center. They were obviously standalones. But in the great unwashed masses of, masses of America, well, anything that was like a flea market or like a bizarre a thing where there was little independent guys, you would see some guy start a comic book store and he had all these comics. He had Rocketeer. He had, you know, first comics. And to us at the time, this just seemed bizarre because that was a moment in time when the big two, DC and Marvel, were just dominant. Uh, so let me ask you real quick, Jay, how, how old were you and what city were you talking about? Let's see. I was in South Carolina. Uh, I was about 11 or 12 when these things started um, to hit, which would have been about 80, 81, 82. Now, we know that there were some things before that, but I, I would really say the beginning of the 80s is when it started. And I think that, that holds up, you know, to the record. Like, when was Rocketeer? I will submit Rocketeer was probably one of the earliest uh, independent comics because it seemed so, because it's already a period piece. It's set in the 40s. Um, uh, yeah, the 30s. Is it the 30s? Yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah. I think it was 82. Yeah, and it definitely was Pacific, and it says it's 1982 on the Wikipedia page, which is about was right. Was it the 30s? Uh, well, okay, I, I don't know. I think. Because I know they have like a Betty Page lookalike, and wasn't she po popular in the 50s? Yeah, but that was an anachronism. <laughs> oh, yeah. fair enough. It, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think it was supposed to be before World War II had happened because nobody seemed to, it was kind of like proto-Nazis yeah. and, and that kind of thing and proto-Germans. It, it didn't seem to be a defeated yeah, Reich that was in it. But yeah, the Betty Page stuff was anachronistic because like you said, that is an icon from the 50s, but he put her in the 30s because he liked her. Yeah. Oh, Plus it so was after, a bullshit after comic, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think it was kind of a Raiders type setting. Yeah. Yeah, I want to say 38. 38 is definitely when the movie takes place. But, uh. yeah. So, and that was Pacific. And we were seeing these brands that, for all we knew, they were fly by night. And then now that we, we grow up and we read, we see that the character, uh, the creators that were involved with independent comics were some of the best of all time. They were, they were either kind of outside the mainstream or they were, you know, former big two artists and writers that wanted to do their own thing. But you had some really big names doing independent comics all through the 80s. One of the ones that immediately springs to mind for me, um, well, two, I guess, were Jim Starlin. Yep. You know, he, he uh, jumped on that, what is it called? It's called Dreadstar? Dreadstar, which was a Marvel Comics epic line. And then it, it moves over to Eclipse. Right. And then you have uh, Mike Grell, who did uh, that series about the assassin or the mercenary. John Sable oh, Freelance. John Sable Freelance, which is first comics. Right. And to me, first comics is... And then there was... You got John Zabel Freelance and uh, Grimjack is one of the early ones I remember seeing. It probably started in 83. Um, and I, I can remember people talking about Grimjack. And, you know, I'll be honest, I really think Grimjack is good. I have the archives. It's very high quality. At the time, I was just, if it's not Marvel superheroes, if it's not like name brand, get away. You know, I didn't want any kind of hero that wasn't a conventional, superpowered superhero. And Grimjack's pretty cool, but he's more of a otherworldly, I don't know, I guess he's a lot like Lobo from the DC Universe. He's this sort of cool swashbuckler that sits in a, a bar at the center of the universe and takes on jobs for 
wayward yeah, people. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why Image later was so much more successful than the early attempts. I, I felt like, um, you know, Grimjack and things like that appeal to an adult. You know, Rocketeer, I see that as like a for like an older audience that's kind of, uh, you know, ready for other genres. Whereas at 12 and 13, you just want like a different kind of a Spider-Man or X-Men. You know what I mean? Like it, it seems like superheroes were it. And I think, uh, you know they might have seen a little more success if they were doing something closer to what I guess fans expect uh, saw them doing from Marvel and DC, you know? Yeah. And that's part of the reason so, I love them so much now is I've, I'm kind of in a place now where what was coming out in the eighties is way, way more up my alley in terms of pushing the boundary on genre. I mean, I, have you guys ever read Airboy, Chuck Dixon's first? I've seen it. I've seen like uh, reprints and trade paperbacks. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to make a wild cards reference here, Jason. But Airboy is is kind of the inspiration for uh, Jet Boy, which who is the the founding sort of uh, patient zero in the wild cards universe in terms of superpowers. Because there was a real uh, golden age comic hero called Airboy, and then in the wild cards universe, which is George Martin's novels based on an alternative 20th century history that had real superheroes, there's Jet Boy. But Airboy, you know, America became fascinated with flight and pilots and Air Force stuff. And so Airboy was like a superhero whose only power was he could fly a plane really well. So he had this little plane that he was like, <laughs> I got to hop in my plane. And, it, and, it, and he, he solved every problem with an airplane. I mean, he would. Yeah, that, that was like a whole genre back then in the 40s. Right. There's tons of those. Well, then Chuck Dixon, and comics. Chuck Dixon brought back uh, Airboy in the 80s. And it was this really sort of homage, pulpy almost like pro wrestling in terms of the characters and the mustache twirling villains. Airboy's fantastic. And they're available now in IDW archives. You should really read them. Um, I was not reading them at the time. They also, um, they also came out in a experimental format. He was releasing Eclipse did a, an, uh, independent comics did a lot of experiments with anthologies where they would have a title that had more than one thing in it. Each, each, each issue. So the stories were shorter. You know, there might be a title that was split between two. There was something called Eclipse Monthly that had anthologies in it. And Eclipse Monthly, I think I've got it here. I wasn't prepared for this, but um, one of the best comics you'll ever read is uh, Rio. I mean, this is the kind of thing you don't realize. Doug Wildey, who is the creator of, of uh, Johnny Quest. You know, Johnny Quest was the labor of love of Doug Wildey, which was only on one season. He turns up in the 80s doing an independent Western comic for Eclipse. And the art is some of the most beautiful art you'll ever see. And the stories are very sophisticated. If you ever, if anybody just goes back and kind of relives the 80s through independent comics, you'll, you'll find it. It comes across like this is the golden age of comics. And yet at the time, just, we saw uh, it off brand. I would also say that kind of holds true for me. You know, I guess we're all showing our age, but that holds true for me for Marvel and DC. You know, when I look back, I've been kind of going back and looking back at the X-Men comics and the Daredevil comics and Spider-Man comics from the 80s. You know, you got Simonson Thor, the Perez on Teen Titans. I, I thought that I thought that era really getting more sophisticated, but still kind of uh, being more efficient with pacing um, kind of having an all ages feel in terms of content. And then you have, of course, all the wonderful Alan Moore and Frank Miller material from the era. So I think it was a really great decade. I mean, people really still was, except, except some of it is that it is like you say, in that they were all ages, uh, uh, more adult, but a lot of the independent stuff is not that way. Like Airboy, I don't know. I guess it is kind of edgier. It's pulpier. It's kind of trashier, but it's not really adult. It's still all ages. 
but yeah, remember uh, Swamp Thing and Vertigo get launched there, and really that's the that's Big Two kind of reacting to the independent comics started to give comic books this panache, this sort of alternative culture vibe that they'd never had unless you count underground comics and R. Crumb and all of that. And when you I also think you were getting that infusion from UK creators as well. Like, you know, you had the Miracle Man stuff from Alan Moore, guys like Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman they, coming over. That was part of it too. And they, I guess, the, you know, they, they wrote for established English comics, but um, from an American perspective, you know, all that stuff was practically independent, you know. Uh, it was that independent. UK. I mean, AD 2000 and Judge Dredd was available in these same outlets. I mean, if you stepped right. in these places that had it, you would see stuff that had this, it, it did look foreign. You would see Judge Dredd and go, gosh, I've never read Judge Dredd. You would see, you would see some British stuff and you'd see Pacific and Malibu. And what I'm saying is it, it just felt like overnight comic books became not this mass culture bubblegum thing that was in your drugstore, but this thing that nobody else knew where to get them. And it felt like right around 83, 84, 85, when it just flipped. And all of a sudden, there was this cool thing. I mean, I'll mention another thing, and I've talked about it before. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It, right. it ends up having an ironic twist <laughs> in what happens with them. But that was almost like an underground comic when it launched. Like, we're, we are so alternative that we make fun of and mock the mainstream. So in a direct sale outlet, Eastman and Laird make Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I would swear that was 84 because I remember when the comic came out. Yeah, it, it was 84. And it was, in, in my mind, to read it, a knowingly satirical take on the mass comic book world of it, you know, what they were essentially playfully so. It wasn't a biting commentary, but playfully they were saying everything over in that world is about mutants and ninjas and teenagers. I mean, it was such had such a Frank Miller look to it, you know. Well, that's because it was a combination of Teen Titans, Daredevil, and X-Men, the three most popular comics. So they were basically right. doing, doing Daredevil. And I, Daredevil I, I, I've heard of that the uh, the Turtles thing was a nod to Cerebus, you know, because like, he was an anthropomorphic yeah. animal well, character. That was what made it kind of indie and subversive. You know, they had to have one thing about it that was kind of, you know, not, you know, uh, mass culture. And so we'll make them Turtles. Well, within two years, there's a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon and a video game. So it was like that that, uh, that became one of the most ironic double twists that this underground independent 80s comic immediately becomes more popular than all the Marvel and DC comics. And, you know, it's a movie within six years. Yeah, it, was, it, it is crazy. I mean, I remember when that phenomenon oh, happened. I, I think it just came comes down to the design. You know, you kind of look back at Mickey Mouse and you think of that iconic three-circle design. I just think that Ninja Turtles you know, the, the turtles with the mask and the proportions of, you know, the way the faces were designed and everything. It was just such a great design and it was so kid friendly. I remember when I first saw the cartoon and I'm sure Jason does as well. Cause you know, I was like eight years old when the cartoon came out and it was like, Holy cow. Like this is like everything I like in one thing. It's ninjas. It's like futuristic. It's, it's talking animals. It's everything, you know, I was just the wrong age. I was like that pimply, you know, world weary teenagers, like you don't understand, man. That's, that's a take on Miller's daredevil combined with, you know, <laughs> meanwhile, all the eight year olds are like, we like turtles. And, uh, but, you know, the foot it, clan is just a rip off of the hand, man. Oh yeah. I mean, I was like, you know, splinter is totally, uh, what's stick. his name? Stick. Splinter is stick. Uh, but, uh, Oh, you know Jason's been kind of quiet during this. I mean, do you have any kind of but let me say one thing 80s memories of independent comics? Let me say one thing Turtles? before we go there. I want to say something about Ninja Turtles. I really do think, it, <laughs> to your point, Jace, uh, James, it reveals 
I've always thought there's something aesthetically pleasing about what is found in comic books. And so many people don't give them a chance because they're like, that's not for me. That's a different world. But they're just cool. They have some kind of, of thing about it. And I mean superhero comics, but really that whole pulpy comic world. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles exported that in the form of what was supposed to be a satirical inside joke to the rest of the world and repackaged it as a, you know, a, a fun animals thing. But it is cool. They wear costumes and they have weapons and they're ninjas. They're cool for the same reason comics were. And that was one more example where the, the creative engine of comic books made this export into the mass culture. And if you just repackage it in something other than a smelly comic book store, a lot of people like it. You know, it's kind of like, I guess that's the appeal of comics as a media. You know, it's anyone can, you know, if you want to make a movie, you, you need a lot of money and you need a lot of technical know-how and yada, yada, yada. Whereas like two guys in an apartment can create the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic book. And plus there's okay. so much out there that there's a constant churn of, you know, that I think it was Theodore Sturgeon that said 90% of everything is crap. And, and it's true. And comic books just have the sheer volume to just churn a lot of crap and reveal that maybe it's not even 10%. That's probably being generous, but that 1% that's just the right combination of cool elements and so for a fairly low price, you can have a bunch of creators just try a bunch of things and go, well, what if it was turtles, you know, and they had powers. And then next thing you know, the, the, the wider culture gets the benefit of, of that idea factory. So Jason, what about you and uh, your 80s experience with independent comics and or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? I wasn't sure, Jay, if it, so did you actually read any of them back then? Because you said that they were kind of exotic when you walked into the store, but I would, I would not. Or did you kind of discover them later? I, would, I, would, I didn't discover them later because they were, I was a comic book nut at that time. So I figured it, it was just my job. And there was articles about things like Grimjack and Comics Collector. I was not collecting and reading indie. I was collecting and reading um, direct only. Because you guys will not, will never know how huge it was when uh, Frank Miller goes to DC from Daredevil and his first big project was Ronin or Ronin and they released it direct only. And people were aware of that project. They were like, some people were like, what does that mean? Hello, where can I have comic book? And uh, so people were having to <laughs> learn for the first time where you could buy that. This was probably, I want to say 83, whenever DC's Ronin, Frank Miller came out. And uh, so that, that all at once kind of made it real. And we started kind of paying attention and it became almost fashionable uh, among comic book people to talk about one they had discovered that they liked. I, I remember Teen Titans went direct only right around that same time. I don't know if you guys remember. The, the, the Baxter series? The yeah, Baxter the Baxter series. What they started doing is, is the, the, the mass market Teen Titans was called Tales of the Teen Titans and it was right. a one year old story. So there was a lot of forces driving us to these outlets and, 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 and starting to make us think about comics themselves as kind of this indie hobby, you know, because I mean, to a, to a civilian today, all of comics are kind of indie, like weird, something that's not in their world. But at that time, there was this divide that, that seemed much greater between independent and mass market. So I was not, you know, buying, you know, Grimjack and John Sable and, and Nexus, but I was very much kind of reading them and talking about them with my friends in the store. I, honestly, to me, I was such a Marvel guy that it was a huge stretch to really just do even DC. I was like, I'm scared. I'll read a few DCs, <laughs> but that's well, You know, it's kind of like, but, you know, you got to look at the age. You said you were 11 and 12 years old. I remember the first time I saw Ronin, 
and the dark knight returns i was like in sixth grade and i just saw him and i was like oh no you know like yeah. this this is not what you know yeah. I, i'm not this it's not colorful um you know it wasn't splashy looking it, it just didn't it's for an adult you know it just didn't have that kid appeal and um now the dark knight returns is one of my favorite all-time stories and frank miller's one of my all-time favorite creators but um i i just wasn't really looking for that at 11 and 12 i wanted spider-man i wanted you know uh, the incredible hulk and all that kind of stuff yeah i mean you're not quite ready for something that's that's reactive till you've fully enjoyed the main thing and, and a lot of indie comics were <laughs> you know there was destroyer duck and 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 they were kind of satirical or you kind of had to be a veteran to kind of appreciate hey this is this is some older creators doing some stuff they wanted to do or teenage mutant ninja turtles you kind of have to already know that to, to sort of get what it was about you had to already be in depth into x-men teen titans and, and daredevil maybe not but a lot of the stuff out there was that and, and Airboy, you know I just, I just gave you the rich history that was there as to why it's kind of cool. Well, when you're 11, you don't know any rich history. You're like, why isn't there Hulk in this? It's a guy with an airplane, you know? Right. <laughs> 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 just imagine you holding a copy. Why isn't the Hulk in this? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> anything you don't like, no Hulk. I mean, my in my mind, man, every comic book, I was like. This could have had the Hulk in it. If it didn't, I would be like, that was a missed opportunity. For you. This is an episode of Nightline. At least what the six million dollars. Oh, yeah. Not the Hulk, yeah. at least the six million dollars. Exactly. I mean, those yeah, two. Yeah, I mean, um, but you know, there was, was some stories. Like, if you, if you think about, uh, like, I collect now Twisted Tales and Alien Worlds. I mean, there was some very kind of EC, and that for, for those that don't know, EC was a was a really high quality horror line and science fiction line in the 50s that is, that is, considered great well we now know there was always a bunch of collectors and, and hobbyists that, that thought it was great well there was a lot of resurrection titles in the independent comics of the 80s that tried to kind of create that ec feel and ec made creep show so if you remember the hbo show creep show in the late 80s there was some of that in the air of sort of a revivalist movement for that kind of anthology creepy Remember the Stephen King? Actually, I'm combining two things. Stephen King wrote a book called Creep Show, which was a tribute to EC, and they made a movie. Tales from the Crypt is what I meant to say a minute ago. Tales from the Crypt is EC, and you remember they made an HBO show. Well, the independent comics of the 80s were doing that, and those are some of the best comics of the 80s right now. If you look at Twisted Tales, Alien Worlds, a lot of you people really haven't even heard about, of them. Like you know, kind of the nostalgia for EC books and stuff without talking about uh, the Comics Journal and Fantagraphics. Yeah. I mean, they were kind of like, you know, leading the charge in terms of like highbrow taste in like, you know, different genres and comics and then um, respect for the history of the entire medium beyond just the superhero genre. Yeah. And, and, and I read those books, those magazines and the place where you could get them if it was an independent comic store or a flea market booth or whatever. This was before the Internet, but you, it, it was almost a harbinger of the Internet in the sense that it was where there started to be a connectedness among all the fans in the hobby. You started to say, this is, this is where you find comics. These comics are for people that read comics. And that, that great divide starts to happen where comics take on much more of, a, of their own independent identity as a work. And if you think about it, if it's going to happen, that there have to be independent comics. I mean, it, it was inevitable that right about that time, you start to have comics houses getting founded. If you process it in terms of the John Byrne fan turn pro concept, you know, what he would say is you got these creators like Jack Kirby and Stan Lee 
that founded the Civil Silver Age because they were the old Golden Age guys trying to bring comics back, and it worked. And so all through the 60s, you know, it's mostly old-timers, you know, guys from the 50s doing it. And then you start to have the waves of the Neil Adams, the John Burns, and the younger guys. And those are the ones that are the first generation of fans of comics actually making comics. And that gets you through the Bronze Age. When you start to see, see it in those terms, it becomes inevitable in the 80s that it will splinter out and become more differentiated, creative, different in terms of what people try. I think the first wave, um, you know, I guess if you don't count the original creators, you know, because they're all kind of like Kirby and was a fan of, uh, you know, the newspaper strip guys. He was kind of a fan term, bro. But if you think about, I guess, comic books as comic books, I remember reading a story about Barry Windsor Smith in the 1960s flying from England to New York City with no money and sleeping on park benches just to try to break into Marvel Comics. You know, I think we've got guys like Jim Steranko and those are kind of some of the first kind of... They're the first wave of guys that were literally working on a comic that they actually liked that same comic, not just comics, but their character that they loved because it's kind of a reset button in about 61 or 60 with justice league and fantastic Four, the the silver age. And the guys you're talking about just started flailing themselves against the rocks in about 69 and 70. So we're, we're kind of, so independent comics, you know, starts becoming kind of like a, uh, I guess kind of like a niche inside of a niche uh, medium, you know? Uh, And then it kind of leads us up to, I guess, the formation of Image Comics, which is kind of a perfect storm that I think, you know, like you said, you had kind of the the buildup with, you know, First, Eclipse, Malibu, all these other Comico, all these companies, but they never really um, seemed to become a huge market force. You know, they were always kind of a niche. Uh, and then you have the 1989 Batman movie, which created a whole lot of uh, mainstream attention in comics. That was around the same time when I, I think baseball cards started getting hot. You know, I have a friend who's very deep into uh, sports card collecting and he, he goes to, he's not a full dealer, but he like goes to shows and he, you know, deals some of his collection and he tries to acquire things, yada, yada, yada. And it's funny how the, the in the nineties, the two uh, industries mirror each other because nowadays, like, you know, a lot of early 90 comics are worthless because there's just so many of them printed like X-Men number one, X-Force number one, et cetera. And that's the way a lot of the ba- uh, baseball and football cars of the early nineties are. Um, they were just saturated the market and they're essentially worthless at this point. Uh, well, I think you, got, you, have, you have three separate, developments and trends that all and you touched on all three of them that all kind of head us in a direction towards image one is the the, in the 80s comics became more creator centric in terms of what was making them interesting and valuable in other words i I, I lived through it firsthand everyone was very aware i I guess i could call it auteurism that miller's daredevil was his baby A lot of those issues skyrocketed in value, like the death of Electra. Sorry, spoiler alert for those of you who read Electra dies. Oh, okay. So there's your baseball card thing. The, the, if you haven't the, seen the Ben Affleck movie, that's right. <laughs> the uh, please don't if you haven't. But uh, you had creator centric creating that idea. You you had it driving values because there were skyrocketing values. And I would put like Walt Simonson's Thor, Simonson's Thor, like 337, skyrocketed. Well, this Thor 337. The one with Beta Ray Bill breaking the emblem, which was Walt's right. first issue. That one was up to about $45 for that issue in two months. Everyone was talking about it. It was, and by the way, malls used to have these things too. There used to be these guys that would just set up in the mall periodically and they would have I've independent, seen those guys. And they would have back issues. 
Um, another one that in skyrocketed. Was was $45 back then was uh, about $3,000 in today's money. It was about $3,000. <laughs> you know, that's right. Uh, Teen Titans number one. It's a actually quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> and people were very aware that George Perez was on Teen Titans as well as Marvel Wolfman. And so that one skyrocketed. And the Burning Alan Perez. Moore, you have Watchmen, Swamp Thing. Well, I'm, I'm not Man. even at 86 yet. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, there's this bubbling thing in 83 and 84 where we now think, okay, comics are about creators. I like Claremont's X-Men. I like Miller's Daredevil. I like Simonson Thor. I like this. I like that. And so the independent comics dovetail with that because those are obviously very creator centric. They're labors of love. You know, when they come out with Grimjack, you never even knew who that was. But then at the, when you combine the, the idea that we should, we should be thinking about who the creators are, that that's something we should be registering. Number two, skyrocketing value. All right. And number three, the well-developed independent market itself. It's all perfect for image to say, you know what? Nobody's done yet. They haven't tried to be Marvel. <laughs> they haven't. They've, they've always differentiated themselves from the big two. But what if all the best rock stars, the same ones that have been driving the sales, Todd McFarlane and, and all these guys just went and said, we're going we're gonna to be like the Beatles going independent. I think the big thing was that they did it all. You know, number one, they did superheroes. They, I mean, X-Force and Youngblood were very similar. You know, yeah, top they basically tried to be Marvel. And Spider-Man, the spawn. So the guys, in t the most important thing I think was two two things. There were guys in tights. So like as a kid, as a, mm -hmm. as a 11, 12, 13 year old kid, to me, it wasn't a stretch. It wasn't like Rimjack where I was like, well, this is something really yeah. weird. It's like Spawn is like Ghost Rider, you know? Um, right, they weren't saying the Savage Dragon is like, you know, like a lot of Marvels, like the thing or the Hulk. Uh, number two though, was that they did it all at the same time. So, like when John Byrne was at the peak of his popularity, he worked for, he did, you know, Fantastic Four and Superman. When George Perez was at the peak of his popularity, he did um, Crisis on Infinite Earths and Wonder Woman. Uh, when Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, and, you know, even though I, I like some of the other creators probably more than those guys, um, but they were really just kind of like guys that were popular, but those three guys were like the big three popular guys. They were the most popular. They were, they were, right. they could not have picked it. And they didn't they, say, they did we're going to do something different. I, and, and, they're saying we're going to do characters that we could have easily done at the big two. These, these are not different. These are conventional superheroes in tights. They're what we want to do, but we're going to own them and do what we want and do it independently. And they were at the peak of their popularity. So, yep. you know, um, I think that was one of the difference. Like when Jim Starlin and Mike Grell kind of did their thing, I don't think they were, you know, they were like, kind of, I kind of see them as seventies creators and they did the indie thing in like the 80s, but they weren't at the very peak of their popularity. And they probably also never got to those the same level. Yeah, they were John Byrne or Walt Simonson. I mean, yeah. I mean the, the guys that started Image were as popular as anybody had ever been in history. It was, it was, it was like Jack Kirby going to DC, but they formed their own company. Yeah, I mean, like when X Force number one came out, it was like the best selling comic of all time. Then when Spider Man number one came out, it was the best selling comic of all time. And then when X Men came out, it was the best selling comic of all yeah. time. So like and those one after the other. The skyrocketing prices from the early '80s are part of what caused that. I'm saying it's like this perfect vortex where, you know, what Frank Miller was doing on Daredevil and Simons and Thor, um, the, the new Spider Man costume was another example. There had been some real spiky behavior um, in the first half of the 80s that really caused a lot of business decisions to be made about launching. You know, you remember the McFarland foil covers and all that. There was a lot of money to be made because in the direct sales outlet, you know, if you, if you mass marketed in the old distribution model before indie comics, 
you just sent some out to the drugstores and whatever sold, sold. Like eight months later, you found out, hey, that one sold pretty good or something. Yeah, maybe I'm right. exaggerating. <laughs> but if you're in the world of independent comics with foil covers and everything else, you can say, I can actually promote this. I can give you a reason why it's going to be big. And the independent retailers will buy more of it. And it will sell $1.2 million precisely because it should. And the, and the market can now... The market has now been built that can react to the popularity of the rock stars, which in 1976, there was no way to really market and sell comics. If everyone had to, wanted to buy a McFarlane comic, it didn't exist yet. But that whole direct sale market was getting developed throughout the 80s, and it was, it was, the time was right for Image. So, Jay, um, you were out of comics at that point, right, Jay? You know, I was not buying them and reading them, but I don't think I ever stopped going in the store. Peripherally aware, but not like really in the trenches anymore. Yeah, because that was the year of the death of Superman. So I was kind of following that story and just watching these other things. But I was not reading the comics. They started looking horrible to me. 90s comics looked terrible to me. That's understandable. Um, So Jason, I mean, you were still collecting at the time. You were, were about the same age, right? Yeah, for me, uh, when did you start? What year did you start collecting? Collecting comics? I mean, I can't remember the first comic I ever bought, but I would probably say I was like 84, 85, 86. And right. by where I'm when Image was coming out was when I started really actually caring about who the guys were that drew them, you know? Before that, I just, okay. oh, this one has Spider-Man in it, and it looks – like I actually – remember in retrospect i would buy comics drawn by john byrne and i would think wow these are really cool looking but i I would never check the credits or anything i would just think this superman comic looks cool i'm gonna buy it and that was the end of it you know that's how i didn't really collect uh for creators yet but around images when i started noticing that these people were these things were actually being done by humans by people yeah i I didn't get into them until really until 88 other than the occasional one off of iraq and so and then i got really into them in 89 90 so it's really when all those image guys were becoming the face of Marvel Comics, because I was definitely into Marvel. And so, like, my whole introduction to Marvel was, and, and you know, Mark Silvestri's X-Men, then later Jim Lee's X-Men. And it was those guys, you know. So I, I know when I first read that news, I, it was 92 that they started. Is that when the, they announced the big launch? And was it 92? 91, 92, something like that, yeah. Uh, I feel like it was early 92 that the announcement came out, maybe late 91, but um, it's, yeah, it seemed like such a big deal. Um, and as I recall, it was a little bit more these days when people kind of sum up the history of superhero comics, they're kind of like, and then uh, in 92, uh, these seven guys left Marvel to form Image Comics, but it was kind of staggered and the, the left Marvel part is kind of a, uh, it's a bit of a simplification because they didn't all leave, like when that announcement came out, a lot of them still worked at Marvel. Um, like like Jimmy's X-Men was still coming out and, and Rob Liefeld's X-Force was still coming out. And it wasn't, the announcement wasn't uh, Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld are leaving Marvel. It was, these guys are forming Image Comics. And in, in the press release, it was like, they were going to do both. Like Jim Lee was like, oh, I still want to keep doing X-Men even while I'm doing Wildcats. And, and then a very quickly, I guess, I think they all well, realized yeah. that it was impossible to do both. Um, the only guy who had really made a big point of breaking away, he had already quit. I mean, you know, people talk about everyone quitting to join Image, but when McFarlane quit Spider-Man, he was replaced by Eric Larson. <laughs> so, you know, it, it clearly was a little staggered. McFarlane quit early. Well, the um, guy that started Image Comics was Rob Liefeld. He got a deal with Malibu, and he, you know, Youngblood was originally a Teen Titans right. pitch he had developed in the late 80s. Uh, you know, never got picked up, and he kind of... Um, even try, there was a book called Megaton where it was like Eric, some of Eric Larson's first 
um, I guess, national work. And in, in number three is actually the first appearance of the Savage Dragon. Number eight of that series, uh, Rob Liefeld, like there was an advertisement for Youngblood um, that okay. never came to fruition, which is interesting. The style is like totally different than Rob Liefeld's style that he ended up with. Like the anatomy is far, like it's not a great super professional drawing, but it's like much better anatomy, much more attractive faces, much more conventional looking at the time. Um, and then I think he what kind of, what year was this? this was like 87, 88, I think. Oh, okay, that early, okay. Yeah, yeah I mean, was Hawk and Dove. I, one of those guys. I thought those were so, the guys, um, I think they said. So he, he made the deal with Malibu, and I think he was just kind of like, I don't think he wanted, he was thinking, I'm going to turn this into um, some big movement. I think he was just like, hey, I want to do my Youngblood comic book, you know, with my characters I created as a teenager. I think, and he, right. he got a good deal with Malibu, so he, he, uh, he was really good friends with Todd McFarlane, and so he invited Todd McFarlane over into it. And McFarlane was the one that wanted to turn it into a movement where he was, you know, he was in yeah. kind of cut from the same cloth as Frank Miller, where he was like um, really like gung ho, you know, Neil Adams, that gung ho creators before companies kind of attitude. And he, they actively recruited Jim Lee. Um, Liefeld and, and McFarlane said, we have to get Jim Lee. And they were just kind of like, like, you know, it was mainly they really wanted Jim Lee, and then the, the other guys were kind of invited by uh, I don't want to say by coincidence, but like Mark Silvestri happened to be around when they were going to walk over to uh, the Marvel offices and tell them that they were all going to unite together and leave Marvel. And Mark just happened to be there, and he said, "Yeah, I'm interested. Let's do it." Whereas if he hadn't been there in the physical location at the time, he might not have uh, been part of that original seven. Well, that's so they actually went because from. I think what I would throw in the mix is we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the growing trend of creator owned and, and, and the compensation structure that was being experimented with all through the 80s. There were the, the first sort of four way forays into creator owned contracts were with the independent houses. And so it's it's not a coincidence that that, that, that these guys left because there was an opportunity to be compensated because they own the company. Um, commensurate with their popularity, and uh, and that's they kind of they kind of broke the broke the hold that the industry had, um, and enabled sort of opened the gate for there to be you know royalties or whatever whatever you define as as creators' rights to where they were able to get very rich very quick. <laughs> yeah, they they were. Um, yeah, I guess you kind of if you see um, people like the offices as the middlemen, right? Um, I'm a customer. I want a Rob Liefeld comic or a Jim Lee comic book. Um, you know, in between me and Jim Lee is like Marvel comics and, you know, they get a slice of the pie all the way up to Jim Lee. Well, Jim Lee can say, well, I'm going to cut out the middleman. If you want Jim Lee, you can buy direct from me with, it's not X-Men, but it's Wildcats. And, you know, if you squint, it's basically the exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you, so you're saying the Image guys did all come, go as a group and say, "Yeah, I watched well. the documentary that was produced by Sequart, um, the Image Revolution, and it's a really great documentary. I highly recommend it. And they interview all of the guys um, that were part of Image Comics. And yeah, like I said um, early on, I think it was just about Rob Liefeld doing Young Blood. It wasn't supposed to be like this huge movement. And Topic Fallen is the one that kind of kind of became the de facto leader, you know, he was a little bit older, yeah. uh, Liefeld looked up to him, uh, he was kind of like the most popular at the time, Jim Lee was, you know, a young buck, you know, McFarlane of, of the seven was kind of like the boss by default, and uh, he's the one that kind of turned into movement, he's the one that says, we have to do it all at once, 
band together and kind of make it all about creators' rights and make it all about, you know, and if you look at the early image comics, like if you look at, um, like I remember buying Spawn number one and reading, you know, you just read it over and over again because all you could afford is like one or two comics, you know, a month or something like that. And you just yeah. read the same comic over and over. Well, they were like $45 a piece. <laughs> What's that? They were $45 a piece in those days. Right. In, in today's dollars, they would be $45 a piece. Right. Back then they were a nickel. Yeah. But um, I just like if you read the back of the comics, like McFarlane would all be about like this is about create. He'd have a column about creators' rights and you know what they did to Jack Kirby. They'll never do to us. Yada yada yada. And you read the back of like a Jim Lee or Rob Liefeld comic is like, hey, next month is you know Bloodstrike or Stormwatch or you know like they weren't really about creators' rights, creators' rights, creators' rights. They they seemed like they were about like you know dollar dollar bill, y'all. You know. Well, and, and it's interesting to watch what, how, how they took advantage of the opportunity because two of them stand out, uh, McFarlane and, and Larson. They did a, a single character title that seemed to be their labor of love. Like, I'm going to do my character and I get to stick with it and have a big long storyline and nobody can, can, you know, edict that I've got to do this and that. I'm not even sure you guys would have to tell me, did McFarlane do much else besides Spawn? I know Eric Larson. He hasn't actually done a lot of, of – he didn't do a ton of Spawn in terms of the drawing. The difference between him and Larson is um, – But before you go to Larson, Larson did, I mean, did McFarlane do a bunch of other image comics besides Spawn? No, 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 no. He um, he had a couple spinoffs. I think he had an Angela miniseries or a Violator miniseries. Or he, he did a series of like Spawn and, you know, the Spawn of the Medieval Ages – yeah, and like a Sam and Twitch detective series that it, Brian it Michael Bendis wrote, but for the most part, he didn't do a ton of stuff. Like when the the companies that really tried to milk uh, the fans the most were uh, Rob Liefeld's Extreme Studios, probably the worst of them all. Yeah, those comics. Were he was like uh, P.T. Barnum and Stan Lee, just launching whammy. You know, just all this. Oh yeah, I mean, like I don't think he, I don't know that he's ever actually finished a complete storyline. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not joking about that. Actually. Had a, in a fit of nostalgia, I have like. Stop laughing, Jason. He's not joking. I have my Rob Liefeld comics right here that I was looking at um, from my long boxes, and you know I was looking back through these, and I was like, man, I don't. Stand I don't up to me. The only story I remember him ever finishing was um, the the first Youngblood storyline, and it took him like the the end of that story originally was drawn by some random dude, and he finally came back like five years ago and drew the end of the, the original arc as part of a special hardcover commemorative edition. But um, <laughs> he was the one, I mean, yeah, like, would, he, Extreme Studios put out so much crap. It was always horribly written. And the artists were, if you think Rob Liefeld's bad, the guys that he got to draw from were basically second rate Rob Liefeld's uh, most. And then the other two studios were um, Wildstorm, which is Jim Lee's. And he, he, he had a, you know, he had a certain measure of quality. They weren't all fantastic, but, the guys that he got to draw usually were, you know, you had J. Scott Campbell and Ryan Benjamin, the other guys that could could draw. Yeah. And then you had Top Cow, um, which was, you know, Mark <coughs> Silvestri's studio. Uh, it had Cyberforce, and its probably biggest character ended up being Witchblade, which was created a few years down the line. But uh, up until Witchblade, it seemed like uh, Top Cow was basically a poor man's Wildstorm. So, um, yeah, those, those, those were the ones that really just cranked out like tons and tons of product and crossovers and, and different series. Um, Larson had a couple spinoffs. He had a few mini series of a few different characters and he tried to have like a, the only ongoing series he really attempted was Freak Force. Um, uh, but he was never one of the more popular image creators. Um, and then you had uh, Jim Valentino 
who did Shadowhawk. He's probably the least popular uh, image creator. I think he he tried to do like a team book, and he had a few Shadowhawk miniseries, but for the most part, he he didn't really. Uh, you know, the market kind of didn't support him after the first few Shadowhawk miniseries. It seems yeah. like, and probably for uh, it's kind of interesting. We should probably mention um, Dark Horse Comics just for completeness. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Very important. I mean, the image, the image trend kind of spawns Dark Horse, which is another image of rock stars leaving. And I, I suppose it ends there. After that, we're in sort of the modern era of 1995 to now. But could you, well, you, could know, you guys tell me well, the Dark, Dark Horse Dark story? Horse. So actually, Dark right, Horse came before Image, though. It was yeah, first. Dark Horse came before Image, and I think um, there were two series. You talking about the Legend imprint? Well, there is before Legend, actually, Frank Miller, Sin City, and uh, John Burns' Next Men came before Image. I didn't know that. You, James, you've yeah. always made me believe Image was like, you know, like these pioneers. But you're telling me Dark Horse, I guess it was the year before. <laughs> no, they're pioneers. It was right around that time, right? Yeah, so basically. Yeah, John. So, again, I, I think the thing with, um, you know, you had Sin City, which was, you know, and you had Next Men. They weren't these smash hit comics the way the Image comics were. They were kind of a guys that weren't quite at the peak of their popularity um, as they were in the 80s. And again, they weren't doing what they were doing with Marvel and DC. Like Sin City, if you're looking for Daredevil and you pick up Sin City, it's not really the same thing. If you're looking for Fantastic Four and X-Men and you pick up uh, Next Men, it's, it's, it's vaguely similar, but not really the same thing. It's a lot of people in regular clothes instead of spandex, a lot of talking heads. It's just, you know, it's a more adult comic book. Again, again, it's not that Image Comics created the idea of creator-owned comics. It's just that they were the most successful. I mean, Image Comics, uh, the fact that they all did it at once at the peak of their popularity and that they actually beat DC Comics in sales, I think, for a few months. Um, you know, because I think prior to that, it's like, yeah, you can go off and you can be like a Mike Grell and do John Sable freelance. But for the most part, it's not really relevant within the larger scope of the industry. You know, you're still going to get steamrolled by X-Men or, uh, you know, Batman or whatever it is. But, you know, for most of the 90s, Spawn was like one of the top five or top 10 selling books. And that just never happened before Image Comics. That does not reflect well in the 90s, but it is true. Yeah, it's it's not a great (laughs) comic book, but it, um, I mean, it's just had never been done before, you know? to their credit, and it, still now, to me, it's like prior to Image Comics, it seemed like the path of the creator was kind of like the path of, of someone like Gil Kane. You know, you Gil Kane kind of went off. He did um, a few different series. He had like a thing called Savage, where it was like kind of a uh, you know like an assassin type dude who was based on uh, uh, the guy from what is that the Dirty Dozen, the main leader guy, I think. He had a comic like that, and then he would do um, like these kind of sword and sorcery things that were one-offs for independent companies. But for the most part, he had to make his living doing Marvel and DC comics, and he, the uh, indie stuff was just – he did a newspaper strip on the side called Starhawks. But for the most part, from the beginning of his career to the end of his career, it was basically about uh, the lion's share of his work had to be through Marvel and DC. It seemed like after Image Comics, you could go make your name at Marvel and DC and then go off and do your own thing if you were popular and successful enough. I think I think before we wrap up, we should talk about some of our favorites. I, I would like to list a few to any listeners that want to go check some out. You know, we can talk all day about this was historically significant and this was the trend. But there there are some really good comic books that were published during this this by independence. Um, I don't know. Are you guys prepared to do that? I'm prepared to. to yeah, kind I of have talk a few. Like you know, I'm, I'm sure after the podcast there'll be a couple that I'm like, oh, I should have mentioned. 
that one, but you know, yeah. I have a few. We won't hold anybody to, to what they say, but if you were interested in checking it out, definitely <laughs> would go look at first comics. Uh, you know, their flagship titles were American flag, Howard Chaikin. It's kind of a tough read now, but it's, it's a really interesting, visually interesting take on kind of this, it's this idea that the post Reagan near future America would be this fascist sort of Blade Runner type dystopian earth. Um, we've already mentioned Grimjack. It's very good. I mean, that's Ostrander. Before, he becomes a, a bigger name later, but the writing in that is very good. John Sable Freelance. He's known is, for Suicide Squad. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, in 83, he's doing Grimjack. I didn't know who he was when, when that came out. I mean, he may have had some history, but I would read that. I would read John Sable Freelance, which you've mentioned. He's kind of a James Bond with a secret identity, more of a almost like a swashbuckling adventuring James Bond with like, you know, you know, rifles in the jungle and all of that plus city intrigue. I, I, I mentioned Airboy. boy. I'm just, you know, uh, Chuck Dixon is a good writer and that one is right in his wheelhouse. Uh, check out Airboy. That was an eclipse title in the eighties starting in about 85 or 86. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, twisted tales and alien worlds. Those are kind of the same, same creator, uh, one after the other, EC style, you know, anthology horror, anthology aliens, very good Eclipse title. I haven't read a lot of it, but I do have a, some archival of Nexus, which we haven't even talked about, um, Mike Rude and Nexus, uh, but that's a very high quality superhero book. Also Eclipse, I believe, right? Uh, so I guess I would hit the highlights here. Look at first in Eclipse for most of the good stuff, and uh, you'll find... Wow. And the stuff can be had for pretty cheap. Most of it in the, in the bins, uh, a lot of it, you can buy in floppies without paying too much. Yeah. I mean, I would second the recommendation for Nexus. It's, um, you know, it's kind of like part superhero series, part space opera, you know, a little bit of that kind of Jim Starlin philosophical space hero kind of vibe to it. You know, it's got the Steve Rude artwork. So it's like, uh, it's worth it alone just for that. Um, some of the comics, though, I really like from the 80s um, are ones that aren't quite as easy to find. I really have come to like over the last few years the work of Richard Corbin, but a lot of that stuff is just out of print. I like, you know, if you can get your hands on it, uh, the Den series is kind of like a take on the uh, Sword and Planet kind of motif of John Carter. It's, it's, um, it's adults-only stuff, but uh, his, his, I think his painting and his artwork is just really, really good. Um, a lot of that stuff is published in heavy metal. So if you can find back issues of heavy metal, uh, you know, he, he had the Bodicey and Mutant World and some other stuff from the 1980s that I really like. I I, I really like the first, um, I don't know, 10 to 15 issues of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I still think it's a really uh, well-drawn series that has a lot of that indie charm to it. It's kind of almost like punk rock comics. Yeah. It's very cool. Uh, Those are know, black and white, aren't they? What's that? They're black and white. They're black and white, but they have been colored a couple different times. IDW did like colored a computer colored series, and then they uh, did a bunch of soft covers. I think in the early '90s, where they they kind of watercolored um, those. Uh, I think first actually produced those. Yeah. By uh, the those way, I, are, bought up all, I bought up all Dread Star uh, Jim Starlin. Uh, in yeah, I was actually that was another thing I was going to recommend. I haven't, I haven't read it. I've just got it sitting in a stack. I want to read it. Start. Well, the first finish. one I would go with there's a hardcover of uh, and you might want to get this gem not sure but you have the metamorphosis odyssey which is kind of the prelude to the actual dread star series proper i might i got dave the hunter to track them all down so they're sitting in a big the, stack the, of like 50 flops. these uh these aren't um going to be in a, a comic book named dread star some of them were published in epic illustrated 
and some of the other kind of anthology magazine style series of uh, the late seventies and early eighties. Yeah. I don't think so. so. Um, it, it's probably, I mean, it's the best artwork I've ever seen from Jim Starlin. He does a lot of like great, you know, like kind of a ink wash and like a pencil shading. I mean, it's available as a hardcover. I, I would, I would recommend that even if you like individual issues, cause you'd have to find all these different random issues of Epic illustrated and like other kind of heavy metal style magazines to collect these issues. Um, still available on Amazon for a pretty good price. I think it's called Dread Star the Beginning. Yeah. And it's Jason, everything I, before the actual Dread yeah. Star series. Jason, I just want to say, I can. I know you haven't read a ton of this 80s indie stuff, but I really think you would like it. Your, your, your number one is Chris Claremont. And, and the guys making a lot of these comics in the 80s independent world were just, I'm not saying they were as good as Claremont because who is right. But th they were of that <laughs> same era and ilk in terms of just, I don't know, the, 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 the approach to writing. And uh, I just think you would like some of them. Uh, and I would actually have to say that I think Claremont was pretty, you know, like his style and voice was prevalent, I think in the eighties, It was uh, the same way, like Warren Ellis and Grant Morrison and Mark Millar's voice is prevalent in a lot of the writers today. But I'd also, I, I'm pretty sure you already have it, Jason, but if you don't, uh, Murata the She-Wolf that he did with John Bolton. Oh, yeah. Do you have that? There's a hard, yeah, I have it, and there's a hardcover that's been released of that. And a hardcover yeah, of like a kind of another sword and sorcery King Arthur era book they did that, that's available cheap on Amazon as well. I mean, if you were trying to do like, kind of the, right. if you were kind of trying to do the, go back to the root causes and the trends, it, it, you know, we know that never ends. There's always, well, then this begat that. But really what Claremont was doing with X-Men, you know, people that argue, when did the Bronze Age start? And obviously the right answer is with Conan number one. But a lot of people say it's the new X-Men that is the real, you know, signature feature of Roy Thomas, Bronze Age, creator-centric continuity uh, with of creators. You know, Chris, we, we already talked about this in a previous podcast of how there's really not an unheralded run by Claremont in the, the new X-Men which you could tell us, but it starts in 75 or 76. So really we're talking about the era that just kind of, that that enacted, you know, all of these indie comics like, like Rocketeer in 82 and Grimjack in 83 and just the list goes on are kind of lapping out in a time when people thought at the time, the best ongoing monthly comic title is the new X-Men that's been written by Claremont for the last six years. So I just feel, I feel like even his influence would be felt there in terms of just the way comics were starting to be written. Yeah. And then I guess going into the nineties, I would, I would, you know, obviously I'm a big fan of Savage Dragon issue 225 came out. Um, I liked everything from Epic, you know, I like Sin City, not Epic, what's it called? The uh, legend line. I like Danger Unlimited from John Byrne. I like uh, oh, wow. Monkey Man and O'Brien. Why? I, I haven't read any of those, including Next Men. And just because of the sort of self-parody that John Byrne has become, I, I had forgotten there's a world where his comics are actually read and they they were good. Like, unironically, people liked them. I mean, I, I would highly recommend, you know, you, you're a fan of his Fantastic Four one. I highly, highly recommend um, Danger Unlimited to you, Jay. Really? It's, and it's got that great 80s indie vibe to it. It's like if John Bird was doing indie comics in the 80s, it probably would have looked like Danger Unlimited. Yeah. I really have trouble getting sort of unfiltered ideas about what to read of his because 
he's got he's such a divisive figure that everyone's kind of morphed from you know what i don't like his old his newer stuff you know what i'm not sure i liked his earlier stuff to they finally ended up with, you know what? I wish the man was never born, you know? And so it's, it's you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think I'm different than a lot of the, I, I like goofing on some of the things he says and goofing on his personality, but I, I can definitely separate the art from the artist. Uh, I, I like a lot of his body work. I, like I said, I, I basically like everything he's done from, your, you know, uh, probably the kind of the tail end of his Iron Fist era to like, you know, the Marvel team up type stuff. I like all that stuff all the way through about Danger Unlimited. OMAC and um, early next men. Then after that, you know, I thought his new gods run was, was decent, you know, but it's, it's where his art can't really overcome the awkwardness of his writing. I think he's a great idea guy. I do. I do like a lot of his concepts. He doesn't have a great feel for, um, he needed a Chris Claremont type. He doesn't have, his his characters come across as robotic. Like Superman reads the same as Reed Richards, who reads the same as, you know, the professor from Doom Patrol, like he, he doesn't really write personalities well. He doesn't give characters that human touch that Chris Claremont was good at. Um, but, well, you I, know, I won't tiptoe around the truth. He was meant to do Star Trek from Eddie. That is, this was all a precursor <laughs> to what he was, his true calling. Star Trek. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of thinking of that moment. <laughs> I think of that moment from The Last Dragon. Where like he's you know it's like everything in from in the last happens to the uh, Bruce Leroy throughout the whole movie at least that point where he's getting dunked in the water and then you know he starts glowing at the end with because he, he has those new kung fu superpowers that's John Byrne right now that's right he's at the, that was a long way to go but it's right <laughs> it's a long way but it's the right way <laughs> what do you say Jason what's that what do you say recommendations and are you ready to make a judgment of uh about indie comics have we persuaded you um very quiet this episode my favorites from the 80s uh and well obviously the the marauder the she-wolf and and that kind of stuff i I didn't get an answer so you have read those hands or the i read one yeah i have read them okay that's cool I was going to recommend them. they're good and i i really wish they would have continued especially with marauder the she-wolf i think that's a you know, he, he does have a talent for, I think, creating relatable female characters. And I think, um, you know, you had characters like Red Sonia, but to me, she just seems like, hey, what if the hot chicks on Conan's leg were actually fighting? You know, <laughs> it didn't really seem like an honest attempt to create a relatable female character. Uh, Marana the She-Wolf, it's like he kind of, you don't even think of her as a, you know, as a female first. You just think of her as a character first. Yeah. Yeah, Marana the She-Wolf and Black Dragon were... That was epic, of course. So it's still kind of Marvel, but uh, obviously creator-owned. Well, so was Dreadstar. Um, and uh, yeah, the illustrations um, by John Bolton are really fantastic. I think he's one of the best artists out there, really. Rocketeer, we mentioned. And Jason, since you uh, you tend to like leapfrog from something you already love, like Chris Claremont to Murata, you should do Airboy just for the wild cards connection. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll think about it. <laughs> I have, I have, you know, and Valkyrie was kind of the love interest nemesis partner that he had, and she makes an appearance. I have the, I have two original Airboy archives from the '40s uh, because they've been putting those out, and the Airboy archives from the '80s that Chuck Dixon wrote. They're really fun. And yeah, and I'll actually second um, something here. You know, like you know, you do like the leapfrog interests. Chris Claremont wrote that um, long run on X-Men, which is a superhero book. And Eric Larson's Savage Dragon is a long run and there a superhero go. book. 
There's your so, leapfrog. There's a recommendation there's to you as well. I do like the long runs I was going to mention. We really haven't talked much about Cerebus. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which, that's uh, a huge omission. Yeah. Yeah, which is Dave Sim started in 1977 or 78. I think it was like December of 77 was the first issue. And yeah. it was doing essentially a Conan the Barbarian parody. Yeah, it seemed like this sort of transgressive underground comic. I mean, it had a pig nose. It was very, you know, it was being printed in, you know, I saw it in the bookstore. So to me, that came from some world that wasn't the world of adolescent comic books. I had trouble, I had trouble <laughs> filing that one away. It was like, what do I do with this? It's kind of like a comic book, but when I open it, I'm frightened and confused. Yeah, well, it was definitely, even from the start, it was pretty, pretty dense. It was, and it was a one-man show. I mean, it was Dave Sim. He didn't go through any of the publishers we named. He just started his own publishing company that just published that one comic, at least at first. Um, and he just went with it. And it was once every, it was bi-monthly, once every two months. And then at a certain point, he decided, you know, this is what I love doing. So I'm just going to publish an issue of Cerebus every month until I hit 300. And this is like 1982 or something. And he's like, in March of 2004, issue 300 will come out. And... Uh, <laughs> Quit. Sort of made that announcement to the world, and, and the world sort and of said, shrugged and, and said, who are you? <laughs> it's kind of crazy how he marginalized himself with those radically misogynistic views. <laughs> like, well, I think <laughs> was, he'd be so highly regarded in the pantheon of creators, you know, alongside a Frank Miller or an well, Alan Moore, but because how weird those essays were, I think everyone was just kind of filed him away with, you know. Oh, right at the point where he was really, I think... Uh, People, he he had just passed the the halfway point because no one really expected he was actually going to get up to three hundred, and he had gotten up to like one sixty or one seventy, and a lot of people started publishing articles about it, and that's how I first heard about the comic. And he was like the champion. He was like, this guy has defied all rational expectations of how a person can make a living. He's publishing one copy or one issue of one comic a month, and he's about making a, a living pig. off of it. Or about a aardvark. Uh, and it, he really benefited from the, the sort of what they call the black and white boom, which when, when Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles became a hit, people were just buying up random black and white comics, thinking it would be the next Turtles, and they could sell the, sell the issues for millions of dollars because the value of this early Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles has gone up so much. Well, if uh, we there was a big boom with black and white comics. We should mention Wendy Peeney and Elf Oh, yeah, another huge omission. Yeah. I hate it. We should redo this podcast <laughs> It looked kind of like My Little Pony <laughs> with Elves or something. I never read it, I confess. It just visually was such a turnoff. I've never read Elf Man, I, I bought like the Essential Style book. <laughs> I, I think it's a really cool looking book. No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is girly, but I, I think it's cool for what it is. I, mm. And it's got that same kind of indie, alternativo vibe that makes indie comics so cool. Uh, I haven't read it myself, but Cerebus is one that I think really... A lot of the story, I mean, he was such an innovative storyteller um, in a way that I, I, Hanzo just sent me some John Byrne uh, Fantastic Four comics, uh, among a bunch of other ones, but uh, the Fantastic Four are ones I've read. And some of the storytelling tricks that John Byrne did, I, I wonder if he was reading Cerebus because he, some of the kind of little way, his uses of panel to panel transitions and things that I wonder if he was reading Cerebus. It, it's really innovative. I mean, he was doing stuff that still kind of is sort of groundbreaking or not groundbreaking, I guess, but still seems very innovative now. Yeah. It's kind of like how Dark Knight Returns still seems like an edgy comic, you know? Yeah. So that, that's definitely one of my favorite things from the eighties. It's certainly the fact that it was a long run, like Claremont's was part of the appeal. <laughs> I read all 300 issues, which is quite a chore. 
towards the end. Better <laughs> yeah. half. Right around issue 180 was when he started doing the weird, he started getting some weird gender politics that turned everybody off. And, but it turned you on. Um, anyway. <laughs> oh, God. That was what, that's what did it for me. You know, it wasn't so much the politics, it was the fact that, it wasn't so much the politics, but he started, it was almost like he, well, I think he is actually a diagnosed schizophrenic. And yeah, he's got some paranoia about it, 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 it. You know, it's there. Yeah. Think people towards the end, some of those issues are like... <laughs> all, all the great some of those issues, seem like they're kind of weird, don't, don't they? <laughs> that's true. But, you know, some of the latter part of Cerebus, I mean, I would definitely recommend the first half. The latter part, some of them you get five pages of comics and then 15 pages of just text screed, like tiny seven-point type. <laughs> he's just going off and it, you know, just reads like the paranoid scramblings of somebody, some like schizophrenic writing in a notebook, just filling notebooks with paranoid delusions. It's a little sad in a way. <laughs> so, but the first half, the stuff published in the eighties is very good. And the, we, I guess we already talked about the Rocketeer, but that's kind of an amazing, you know, it was only like four issues that he put out. Yeah, they were yeah, longer. I think the Disney kind of movie is like kind of what made it into such yeah. kind of, turned it into kind of a memorable. I, 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 honestly, I, I never really read it before. And I was never really interested in the Rocketeer as like a uh, concept or whatever, but I got to say, just as a guy that dabbles in drawing, I mean, this Dave Stevens guy, holy cow, that guy really can ink a comic book. I mean, he, his underdrawing is great, yeah. but man, I just his inks are just unbelievably slick. I, I, I yeah. have his artist. I'm not a huge Rocketeer. I've got, I've got the artist edition. I've got two different um, art books from him. I think he's just a phenomenal uh drawer of the comics yeah story-wise there's not much to it but it's just so beautiful to look at and the design and stuff um and yeah we, i guess in the 90s that second the next man thing I, I read i read all the next man stuff back in the 90s did you ever read the uh his when he came back to it in the conclusion did you ever read any of that i never bothered it sounded bad me neither <laughs> but uh uh, yeah, I think so, like honestly, if you like his Fantastic Four work, I think you'll like Next Men in Danger Unlimited. Yeah, we talked. <laughs> they're light reads. I, I would just just get Next, a trade. Next Men starts with well, you don't have to read it first, but the first thing is that twenty one twelve one shot. And uh, one man with some very special training is that what you're getting? <laughs> yeah, we were talking about there's some really uh, embarrassing dialogue in that twenty one twelve one. It really is toned up. I don't we, think it would be that, cost effective. Um, I don't think it would be cost effective to get a trade. I can get all those issues in a quarter, a quarter a piece in the quarter bin. Yeah, so. yeah. Except for um, that, the first issue. Yeah. So uh, I did. I I and I know we're, we wanted to wrap up here, but um, I am kind of fascinated. You did peg me right as far as liking the long runs. I mean, Larson's been doing Dragon for is it two hundred twenty-five issues? Is that right? Two hundred twenty-five issues as of I think last month or this month. Over the course, I mean, right from the start of the launch of Image, so ninety-two. So that's twenty. I mean, I'm thirty-seven years. years old this year, and I remember I I've been reading that comic since I was fourteen or twelve, thirteen or fourteen. I had to go back and get some of the issues and fill in my collection, but I've been reading that like you know uh, more than half of my life. And correct me if I'm wrong. I thought you told me this once that you just kind of picked it at random, like you were like, I want to pick a comic, and I'm just going to collect it every month, and it's going to be my comic. Yeah, a kind of not totally decided. random. I mean, I had to like it. I, I first tried to do that with Wonder Man. Uh, Marvel re launched Wonder Man <laughs> number one. And I thought, hey, well, you know, Spider Man was into the three hundreds. <laughs> Fantastic Four was into the four hundreds. You know, you kind of like that's what made Image so exciting to me at the time. Was like I thought we were witnessing the birth of a new Marvel universe, and I was getting in on the ground floor. Um, 
but yeah, so like I first tried it with Wonder Man, but then they switched to an artist I didn't like, and I just kind of dropped it. And that was kind of the appeal of Savage Dragon was that it was always going to be done by Eric Larson, who I liked and, and still like, but I liked him a lot more back then. Um, and I was like, yeah, I, I like this guy. I like this comic. And I'm just going to get every issue of it. And honestly, if it weren't for the Savage Dragon, I probably would have totally dropped physical comic books at this point. I wouldn't bother with a, a, a pull list. And I would probably just only buy like, you know, hardcover editions of like Jack Kirby comics or something like that. So it's the only thing keeping me in the monthly game right now. I felt the same way until they came out with Future Quest and Johnny Quest and Space Ghost. I'm back in. I'm all in on DC. Is it? Future didn't Quest. they end that though? Well, the Future Quest uh, maxi series was to you know, one story by by uh, Jeff Parker and Doc Shaner that that sort of introduced all the characters from the Hanna Barbera cartoons and sort of brought them into the same universe or this universe. But now they're launching titles. So there's a there's a Space Ghost title, uh, and there's you're gonna, there's going to be I mean what they what they call Future Quest is Johnny Quest. So they're all coming back. It's sort of like a separate line now. Like I only bought the Future Quest one, and I just bought it for the Doc Shaner art. So. Uh... Well, that's most of what's out there. There's been a, there's been a couple of one shots, and then space well, he did like a weird one. Flintstone, postmodern Flintstones comic. Yeah, that's totally <laughs> done some sort of a edgy yeah. Jim Lee's Scooby Doo series or something. Right, but I'm not talking about that stuff. <laughs> it sounds like I'm joking, but I'm not. It sounds like something no, all of that. Everything you said is accurate. It's not even, you know, it's exactly what you said. But I'm not talking about the Scooby and the Flintstone. I am talking about the Herculoid space the superhero stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there was I kind of, like, you know, I'm not, I didn't grow up really watching those, but I'm kind of, I'm, I'm at an age right now where, you know, like it's hard to get me excited about the next Thor and Spider-Man, even though I, those are my favorite characters ever. It's just like, I want something just different than what I've read my whole life, you know? And like, to me, like this whole like appeal of that would be like, if they got like creative teams I liked, which would be like, wow, this is like a whole new super, well, new to me at least. This is like something that's totally different than Marvel and DC. And they're not just Marvel and DC analogs, you know? Space Ghost isn't really like, you know, like a Superman clone or anything like that. He's like, so it's kind of like, wow, you know, like, what could this, how could this go? You know, like, they're, you know, they don't have to just kind of tread water here trying to dream of another way for Peter Parker to get attacked by the Vulture. They can uh, do something just radically different. Space Ghost is a great costume design by Alex Toth. Um, Johnny Quest is a great concept. I mean, the original cartoons are great. You know I like Race Bannon. That's my favorite character from it. So there will AKA eventually be like a, like a Race Bannon solo comic. I will have to have it. <laughs> if you could get anyone to do that comic with Race Bannon, besides Mike Pence, who would you get? I, I think Doc Shaner <laughs> did a good job on Future Quest. I would like to keep Parker and Shaner together. You know, I don't know if you read your Future Quest issues. I'll bet you didn't. But I uh, read the first couple, but then, uh, you know. They piled up on me, but I have caught up. But in, in Future Quest, Space Ghost says, well, there's only one thing I can do. And he takes off his, you know, Space Ghost gauntlet thing that gives him his power of Space Ghost. And he gives it to Race Bannon and goes, here, put this on. And Race Bannon's walking around with the, with the powers of Space Ghost. It's pretty cool. Is that around when he decided to start that late night show? What? <laughs> no. Coast to coast? Those are hilarious. But yeah, they're really they're real Space Ghost, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah get, I, I mean, get mixed um, up. actually, the host was not Space Ghost. It was the villain, right? It was. I kind of like the idea of Frank Miller doing a Sin City-esque race Bannon series. <laughs> you know, just gritty as hell. Oh, I know. <laughs> 
I mean, there's all kind of little hints. If you ever watch the old Johnny Quest, there's all kind of little hints that Race Bannon has a really like checkered past that he's, you know, smothered people with pillows and it's everything. <laughs> there's no telling right. what you could tell. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. So back to Indie <laughs> Comics, Doug Wildy, Rio. If you want to connect with Johnny Quest, read Doug Wildy's Rio. It's available in a trade. Some of the best comics ever written. Kind of, he kind of lived out what, his life in obscurity. Oh, I, I'm not joking about this one, uh, uh, Jason. If I think you would really like uh, Freak Force, which is like a spinoff of um, the uh, Savage Dragon series, but it was like co-written with Keith okay. Giffen. And it was drawn by Vic Bridges, who draws a lot like John Byrne, and it really reads and has that kind of '80s Claremontian vibe to it. Okay. What what does somebody do now with 225 issues of Dragon? What if somebody wants to get into the Dragon? When do they? How do they do that? Oh Jesus Christ. Um, it's not easy. Uh, people sell full <laughs> runs on eBay pretty cheap compared to like how much they are at, at cost originally, you know, if you think about it, they're like mm, okay. between three or four bucks a piece as they came out, they're pretty cheap. Um, I think they're all available digitally through Comixology. Uh, there's trades of like a huge chunk of it, but unfortunately there's like a middle section of like, you know, and I'm going to say issue like some like 60 or 70 through like 100 and, 30 or something or 140 that wasn't collected in trade. Um, so trades are kind of like, Jason, I've got about the first hundred or so I'd have to count, but we could do like a little trade off where we sort of ship them around each other. Cause I, I just bought them to read <laughs> okay. for the same reason you're asking this question. I got intrigued because the hands are liking them. And I was like, yeah, I kind of would like a soap opera book that has continuity for that many issues. I only, have what, what, what issue did you get up to about 20, somewhere in the high teens. You lost interest. No, I hit a snag. I mean, it, it's a little bit rough and dark for me in terms of. It, it really gets a lot. Um, yeah, it, it kind of lightens up. I mean, it, it'll always stay vulgar. I, I kind of. Uh, Larson has kind of like have a. It's gotten really. The newer ones have gotten like a little too overtly sexual for my personal taste. Yeah. I actually have no problem with it, but I just. It's not my favorite uh, zone, I guess, you know. Yeah, I've I read Sin City comics. Just, uh, Richard Corbin comics are almost pornographic, me. but for me, like. The Savage Dragon, um, but to me, my favorite era is around issues. I'd say thirty to forty, where he kind of leaves Chicago and the series lightens up a little. And he's part of this government team. That's where, around when Rob Liefeld got kicked out of Image Comics. Originally, in in the um, in his comics, they just drew from himself at home. Savage Dragon left, led a superhero team, a government team called the SOS, the Society of Superheroes. When they formed Image, uh, Rob Liefeld, and they decided to have a shared universe, Rob Liefeld kind of, Youngblood was the government team, so that's why Larson made him a cop. So once they kicked Rob Liefeld out of Image for, uh, I guess, trying to steal talent from Top Cow, uh, <laughs> they, uh, he said, okay, well, the government team's open, and he kind of created And then you get into a lot more of the Jack Kirby-type stuff. Like he has this character, Dark Lord, that comes in from another dimension and tries to um, replace the dragon's dimension with his dimension. Um, and then, you know, they get lost in space for a while. Then he comes back. And uh, I mean, there's this whole kind of series of events, but it, it just gets a lot like bouncier and more fun. Cause like, I'd seen that first like 20 to 25 issues where he's fighting organized crime and almost has like a superhero-y Sin City-ish, Frank Miller-ish kind of, it's yeah. like dark. Like you were saying, it's like really like violent and dark, but it, it lightens up for a while. And then by issue 75, he goes like full – issue 75 through like 90, he's like full commandy mode. Oh, really? Speaking of which, yeah. 
if you want to just up. jump up through issue 75 just take a look it's like he, there's thought bubbles it's like it's got the tone is radically different that's what's interesting about the series is like there are these certain blocks and arrows where larson just kind of creatively changes and it's almost like done by like a kind of a different mentality it's still got his style but it's like um there's eras of the book i just don't like and don't want to reread and there's eras of the book that i think wow these are just phenomenal comics right. yeah i think that's the fun of any long run i mean cerebus is kind of like that too where you can kind of see where his his uh focus kind of shifts and the, the kind of stories he wants to tell changes and but you get the continuity of it and it just kind of takes you in a new place and even claremont's x-men is like that too really it always comes yeah, back yeah, to what, that, doesn't it well, you know, you have like well, a series of. Books. You guys brought him up a lot more than I did. You have a series of books in Claremont's X Men where they're walking on the side of the angels, and then there's another whole series where they're not. They're yeah. just the best there is of what they do. <laughs> sometimes they're asking for no quarter. Sometimes they're given no quarter. <laughs> sometimes they're giving quarters out left and right, like they're in an arcade. <laughs> um, so, have we covered it pretty thoroughly? We've covered I the think world so. of indie comics. Yes, at least for the first couple of decades. Yeah, I'll probably have to edit a chunk of this out, but uh, oh, that's no, that's not happening. Talks got to go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I so, kind of like the idea of not doing this as a podcast. Just as a, I like a, just like a freewheeling conversation. <laughs> well, there's really not much difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what about Clearly all our I'm one in jokes? You know, yeah, one yeah. man with some very special talent. We we laughed way too hard at that at that I'm one meetup, but. Uh, <laughs> What's yeah. that dude's name? Todd. <laughs> Remember when we were on Todd's deck? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Baltimore Comics. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jason brought it up. I'm just one man, but one man with some very special training. <laughs> it was like it's supposed to be a badass line in uh, one of a burn comic, and like we just laughed all night every time he would say it. I just, just crack up. It's such a lame, like badass line. You know? Oh, it's so perfectly lame. Yeah, it's like. It's it's got that right. I, I'd love to like see like Steven Seagal or someone like deliver that line. Yeah, you could, we could have Jay do it in his Liam Neeson voice. I could oh. do it. I don't know who you are. <laughs> okay, so like the line Jay is like, there's a couple guys like ganging yeah. up on this one. He's dude. Only like, one man. Come on, he's only one man, and he's like, I am only one man, but one man with some very special training. I am only one man, but one man with some very special training. <laughs> <laughs> what if he said that in the phone? Yeah. And that's they kind of like what he says in the phone. I have a particular training. set of skills. I have a very which is really not any set of more badass. Skills that make me a particular set of skills like you. Because like usually the line is like, he's only one man. He's like yes, I'm one man, but I've always believed that one man can make a difference. I've always believed that one man can stand up. Blah blah blah. But I'm one man with very special training. With a very special training. I think it's the words very special, you know? Yeah. It's the very special that really gets I'm it. I'm just one man that's been trained by the best. You know, I've seen lines like that in comics with sure. special training. Yeah. Very My special. mom told me it was very, very special training. <laughs> so, all right. So, I should officially sign off, I guess. Line us off. and Jason. Triple J. Just like the classic Australian rock and roll station. That's right. Um, of course. Signing off episode six. Uh, Good night, everybody. Hope to, uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Good night, guys.